Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we're going out to your neck of the woods on the West Coast, Southern California. It's been too long. It has been a while since we've talked to some folks from down in that part of the American shoreline. And uh, we're going to be talking about coastal engineering today with one of the preeminent practitioners of the trade, Russ Brudreau with the Coastal Frontiers Corporation from Long Beach, California. So I'm really looking forward to uh, knocking around a story or two about coastal engineering practice in the West Coast and maybe even get over to Hawaii. I am looking forward to looking forward to it as well, Peter. Uh, getting out to the old homeland, the West Coast, as my grandfather used to say, just the coast. When are you coming out to the coast? When I was in college, <laughs> I I uh, I'm looking forward to that, and really looking forward to talking to Russ. Russ has Russ has spent his entire career in coastal engineering, uh, spanning decades, uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to talk about him, talk with him about the uh, profession, what's changed. And really kind of deep dive this uh, interesting Hawaii project. So I am looking forward to it. But let's first start out with a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. And by Coastal Protection Engineering, a new name in the coastal engineering industry made up of professionals that are anything but new to coastal restoration. With offices in Florida and North Carolina, this multidisciplinary team provides clients with a full suite of professional services for beach nourishment, coastal resiliency, inlet management, and navigation projects. This is a great team with well-respected industry leading professionals and strong credentials. Working with local, state, and federal clients, They have the horsepower to handle large-scale coastal restoration projects. But as a small business in this ever-changing coastal environment, they understand the need to respond and adapt quickly to every client's unique challenges. Check out CPE at CoastalProtectionENG.com or follow them on LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking today to Russ Boudreau. Russ, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, Well, I really appreciate that, Peter and Tyler. I really look forward to it. It's it's an honor, and uh, I'm excited to to do it. And uh, happy Earth Day. Thank you very much. That's right. That's this week. Uh, For the audience's benefit out there, uh, Russell Boudreau is uh, a member of the board of directors of an organization we are fond of, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. Russ served as the vice president of that organization for some years uh, prior to becoming a member of the board. Uh, he is also a principal with Coastal Frontiers Corporation, a boutique specialized in very high quality coastal engineering firm uh, headquartered in Long Beach area of California. Uh, prior to joining 
Coastal Frontiers. Uh, Russ spent a considerable time as a vice president with Moffitt and Nickel, one of the great firms well known around the country in coastal engineering. I uh, just got to pause here. Uh, uh, if you're a, a, a person starting out your career, yes, and you're building your resume, you know one of the things that you strive for is to have some longevity, yeah, on your resume. Show that you can commit to something and really. Russ's resume has from 1986, which was the year I was born, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> to the year 2020, Moffat and Nickel. That is... That's tenure. That is tenure right there. Right. <laughs> and he is also the author of a, of a great paper in the fall 2018 ep- uh, edition of Shore and Beach Magazine, the scientific journal of the ASBPA. Uh, organization entitled Maui's Living Shoreline Project provides adaptation strategy for critical infrastructure and we're looking forward to learning about what's going on in Maui and the project that Russ led in uh, in Hawaii so yeah really cool this really was cool discussion coming the, up. this article was from uh, the fall of 2018 uh, shore and beach edition uh, so it's a little bit of an older one, but we didn't have a chance back in fall of 2018, Peter, to to profile this particular issue and this particular coastal project that was highlighted. So uh, this is a great opportunity to sur- swing back around yeah, and take a trip out to Hawaii with our listeners, which I know everyone's going to enjoy. Well, but before we do, let's get to know Russ a little bit. Yeah, let's do. Russ, you know, one of the things we like to do, and especially for the, the young professionals who listen to the American Shoreline podcast, uh, is talk about how you got into this profession. I wondered if you could introduce yourself to the audience a little bit and talk about your interest, your early interest, and what got you into uh, coastal engineering. Absolutely. It's, it's a topic I really like to, to talk about. Uh, coastal Frontier, coastal engineering has been a, been a great career choice for me. And and you mentioned Hawaii. I'm going to pivot to uh, where I was born, which is actually in the Midwest. I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Wow. But uh, my family uh, moved to Long Beach, uh, California, when I was pretty young. And and my uncle had this beautiful varnished mahogany sailboat. Ooh. And uh, we spent a lot of time uh, with the family um, sailing in the near, nearby coastal waters, competing, uh, all up and down the Southern California coast and offshore to Catalina. And so I really developed not just a love for the ocean, uh, but also kind of a humility of, of how powerful the ocean can be. In addition to sailing, I really developed a love for uh, surfing and windsurfing and found that, that the ocean and the coast has always uh, provided a real elixir for me in my life. And so um, Academically, uh, when I was younger, I really liked math and science. Uh, I guess STEM, we call that now. And so uh, um, for an undergrad, I chose obviously a, a coastal school. So I chose UC or University of California, San Diego. And after uh, four years in a fairly theoretical program, um, my advisor told me that I was ready for graduate school. So wow. yeah, yeah, it's like I've got some tools, but what do I do with them? And so uh, I was just in the library leafing through various uh, graduate program catalogs and University of California, Berkeley was when I was opened up and there was this program called Coastal and Ocean Engineering. And I had no idea that anything like that even existed. So long story short, I applied, got accepted and 
I was just so fortunate because uh, the head of the department, my my advisor, Professor Robert Weigel, was one of my my first and primary mentors, and I just was so fortunate to uh, work under Professor Weigel. Um, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with uh, Professor Weigel, he was one of the the modern pioneers of of modern coastal engineering. Back in Berkeley, when I was doing my, my master program, one of my fond memories is, and again, as you mentioned, I, I do have quite a bit of tenure. And so uh, this was before uh, numerical computer models of waves and things like that. So we did a lot of calculations by hand. And I remember doing a wave refraction diagram, which is a diagram that demonstrates how waves move from deep water into shoreline and how they're affected by the shoreline and wrap around headlands and spread out into embayments and things like that. And so I was doing these refraction diagrams along the coast that I was familiar with. And to me, it was just awesome to be able to apply these tools and actually see how waves progress onto a shoreline. So I, I really remembered that, and that really stuck with me, the power of those tools. And so uh, um, I really developed a love, not just for, for Berkeley, but the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I decided I was gonna stay up there for a while. I went to work for a, a more of an ocean engineering firm up there and did a lot of work in the more the deep water and Arctic for more oil and, grass, oil and gas exploration. But I also um, continued to recreate and sail competitively up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I, and I bring that up because uh, San Francisco Bay is quite a large estuary. And um, I really learned a lot about the, the dynamics of these large estuarine processes. Yeah. You know, you think about the size of San Francisco Bay and all the water that's in this, what we term as a tidal prism, the amount of water that comes and go over a tide cycle. All that bay water comes in and out of the Golden Gate Bridge twice a day. And so the, the, the currents are very uh, dynamic and complex. And if you're racing against other boats competitively, you want to get the competitive advantage of knowing where the current is going fast in the direction you want to go and where it's going not so fast in the direction you don't want to go. And so I learned a lot from the local salty guys up there um, in terms of getting some of the local knowledge. And then the only other thing I want to add about that is um, in the wintertime, in the, the El Nino winter of uh, the uh, early 1980s, um, the with the, the great deal of rain and runoff that we had, at least on the surface waters, there was we never saw any flood tides because with all the rain runoff, even during an astronomical flood tide, the water was just ebbing. All all the water was doing was just leaving the bay all the time. And when there was a real ebb tide, these um, I remember seeing these navigation buoys, these large. Uh, bell buoys for navigation just laid over with a rooster tail wow. um, as all this current, both the tidal current and the runoff was just flying through the bay. So, wow, that was uh, a little bit of my experience up in the, the Bay Area, but I decided um, that I wanted to uh, have a change and do a little bit more coastal work. And so I uh, uh, came back down to Long Beach in Southern California, and that's where I um, uh, took my employment with Moffat Nickel. And, um, you know, I, the other speakers that I've heard on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, there's this theme I've really enjoyed is, 
you know, people in the profession, they talk about mentors and other folks that they've worked with because you just don't do this alone. You collaborate and you, you benefit from others' knowledge. And so my second mentor was uh, a gentleman, Kimo Walker, who was my supervisor at Moffitt Nickel. And interestingly, he got his PhD from the University of Hawaii in surfing, of all things. Huh. His, uh, yeah, yeah. His PhD thesis was. You know, um, I didn't have that option. I, I, that's a good one. <laughs> I didn't even we know that have, was available. I didn't know that was available. We could have looked into yeah, that. Yeah, uh, it's really, and it's and it's not just. I mean, it's really fairly um, technical thesis on physically what makes a surf break, how to quantify it in terms of, you know, wave height, period, peel angles, steepness. It was really something, and and it really that work formulated kind of the foundation for a lot of the really good work that's going on now um, internationally in terms of designing artificial surfing reefs and things like that. So uh, anyways, me fortunately um, working under chemo, um, I got to go on out to Hawaii with him and learn about coastal engineering in, in Hawaii, uh, the overall coastal uh, processes, beaches, fringing reefs and things like that. So. Couple of things I learned about that, and I'm setting up for my my discussion about the Maui project, is a couple of things you had to do right. You had to be able to pronounce the names properly. Um, for example, one of my favorite beach parks in uh, Maui was Waiana Panapa, and uh, <laughs> we're you gonna, also we're going to need that skill. At, uh, when you're at a a public hearing or a public presentation, you better make sure you know your Mauka direction from your Makai direction, which is to the land or to the sea. And anyways, through that, that gave me kind of a, a good uh, background for this County of Maui project that I'd like to talk about a little bit today. Well, we we do too, uh, and it uh, we're going to get there. But I do want to, two things, I, I want to pause the chronology here at this stage in your life. You've uh, gone to undergrad, you emerged with a degree in applied mechanics, I believe. Um, which is definitely a STEM-heavy subject, and go up to the Bay after that to UC Berkeley and get a master's degree. And um, the first thing I just wanted to ask you about is this is a really interesting time in California. The population is booming. Um, so much of the L.A. basin and, and you know, as a, as a child myself of California, I've we had to take the history of the state, and I know that so much of the development that I grew up with kind of happened, um, you know, maybe a little bit before during that period of time, but certainly after World War II, uh, up until the 80s. I mean, just huge population growth, lots of growth uh, up and down the state. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were observing in California on the coast during that period of time? Were you... Uh, was, was there anything about the way the state was changing from a land use perspective that caught, captured your imagination even from that, those early days? Well, I think, I guess one thing that, that stands out to me in terms of land use and, and, and water was, um, again, this may be a little bit before going to Berkeley, but the, the state of California passed the uh, Coastal Act, um, which really uh, yep. limited... Um, uh, impacts to the environment, to the water, and things like that. And so, one of the things I just that that was profound to me that I noticed was how much uh, Mother Nature had the ability to, to lick her wounds and, and improve uh, the situation. The water quality back in the the late '60s and '70s in the ports and harbors was really bad. 
And once the um, uh, Coastal Act was uh, um, put into place and uh, industry was really regulated in terms of point source pollution and things like that, and it was dramatic that I noticed how much um, uh, the water quality really improved. So that was a pleasing thing to me. That was a positive. You know, back then it just seemed like, you know, beaches for the most part were, were pretty wide, um, that there was a lot of still growth potential and things like that, but it hasn't been into more recent years when we realize that, that population grows, but the beaches don't. In fact, the beaches kind of shrink and we were just kind of going through in the 70s and the 80s this this kind of um, paradigm shift of no all these resources aren't unlimited uh, these wetlands for example Bolsa Chica for an example when I first started at Moffa Nickel in the in the mid 80s one of the first things I was tasked with was you know well there's this this wetland we're gonna kind of dredge it out and put another marina there and you know how big should the bridge be and all this stuff and and soon thereafter I certainly had concerns about that was people so whoa wait a minute you know these things are of great value we've damaged uh, and destroyed many of our wetlands we need to completely rethink how we manage our coast mm -hmm. and really value the ecosystems and so that's probably one of the key things that I noticed was this big shift away from development and expand to really taking care of, of what we got and protecting it. Uh, well said. And uh, definitely, you know, when as a child of Ventura County, which is, I believe, the most armored county in the state of California, uh, I know that a lot of that armoring uh, was constructed uh, roughly during this period of time. And uh, Makes it a very interesting time. Before we move on, again, I'm, I'm in this pause state in the story. Could you take us on to the Berkeley campus in like 1979? What was it like uh, up there? I, I would just love to, to get your... At, just, least, at least one story. Uh, yeah. What was it like on, on the Berkeley campus during that period of time? Well, it was a little bit after, you know, kind of the wild 60s and things like that. In fact, honestly, you know, for being down in Southern California and trying to figure out what I wanted to do for graduate school, I wasn't that keen on Berkeley because I thought there was a lot of crazy people up there. And and I just enjoyed the beach and just wanted to keep doing what I was doing. But the, the program of coastal engineering was so compelling, I had to go up there and never having been there, it, it really opened my eyes. It was, uh, it was um, there was like, think with any university, a little bit nutty and you had the, you know, the naked guy who was around, you know, preaching at the Campanile and things like that. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, I think it was a little bit after the, the, the at least the radical part of Berkeley. And so to me, it was just kind of a, a really um, environment of uh, strong international flair um, and of uh, um, just um, strong academics. I, I honestly, I, I studied pretty hard while I was up there, you know, so, but I did squeeze a lot of sailing as I indicated. Well, as well, so. I love that. You know, I, I, ladies and gentlemen, the East Bay is uh, a beautiful area. Host Leslie Ewing uh, lives in Berkeley, California. Uh, actually put us up when we were covering Peter, the International Ocean Film Festival a couple years ago. Yeah, it was great. And uh, it is a beautiful uh, coastal, uh, community area of the American shoreline 
And Russ, I lived in the Emeryville Marina on a sailboat. Did you really? <laughs> I really did. Uh, it was an interesting period of time in my life. But uh, the great location for you. From the Berkeley oh. Hills, you just go right down the hill to the bay. I mean, come on. Yeah. And you can, plus, from the Berkeley Hills, you'll get this incredible panoramic view of the entire San Francisco Bay from the North Bay to the South Bay and due west to San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz. And if you lined it up just right, you can look through the Golden Gate Bridge and see the, the Farallon Islands offshore. So it, was, oh, wow. it, it, mm-hmm. is, it is and it's still just an absolutely idyllic place. Well, Russ, I think what's interesting about that introductory story, and thank you for taking us through that that process of your early career, there's two major transitions that you talked about that I want to expand on a little, expand on a little bit. One was uh, the nature of, of coastal engineering investigation at the time under Professor Weigel, who is renowned, of course, in the coastal engineering profession uh, there at Berkeley. But it's this observational understanding of, of coastal processes. Uh, this is pre uh, computer modeling. This is back in the slide rule days and the calculation days. And it reminds me, Tyler, of our discussion with Joan Pope, uh, Dr. Joan Pope, who formerly with the Corps of Engineers, who was also coming into her uh, professional life in, in this time period and talked about the value of observational uh, coastal engineering totally. and, and analysis. This was when you had to go out and look and you had to watch and you had to be at the waves. You had to, and you understand it. That there's less of that now. And I wondered if you could talk about how that was approached back in the day. Um, and what do you think, if anything, has been lost in our strong tor- turn toward uh, high-tech computer modeling of coastal systems? Right, right. That's a really good observation, a really good question. So, yeah, yeah. Um, when I was um, at, at Cal working under Professor Weigel, very, very strong emphasis on analytical tools of observation and um, doing work in in the lab um, because we had these certain you know physical laws of similitude and so we could comfortably try to replicate you know physical processes as long as we understood the limitations of these these physical models and learn a lot and if we could replicate what we saw in the, in nature that we could measure in nature. Then, we'll, then maybe we could predict outcomes for other projects that we do, like, like putting in a uh, um, uh, a shore protection, or a, or putting in a breakwater, or maybe putting in a, um, a cooling water jet, you know, into an embayment or something like that. So it was very empirical, um, and you learn from that. And some of the, and we are getting away more from the physical model testing, um, or even the observations, because. I think we're, I mean, these models that we have now, these computer simulation models are very powerful, but yeah. they're only as good as the information you you put in them. And so um, we have to be very, very careful. And some of the best computer modelers that are the modern day modelers, the good ones are the ones that are that are pretty skeptical about, about, you know, how the model works and you better make the model prove that it can replicate something that they really saw mm-hmm. or they really measured. You know, some of my experience has been you just can't imagine something unless you you see it physically in a storm or you're in a laboratory. I learned so much, you know, working out the waterways um, experiment station, which is now Erdic uh, for the Corps of Engineers for some uh, breakwater design projects. 
and you build these scale models, but you really watch and see how the, the armor stones actually lift up and move a little bit and settle. And we learned, for example, that um, uh, for a breakwater, you need the biggest stone on the back, not the front, because of gravity of the waves going over the top. You know, and you wouldn't learn that by looking at a computer model. So all I can really say is don't rely completely on these very fancy computer models. And certainly nowadays with the, uh, these graphic interfaces and um, video simulation, it looks so real, you figure, well, it's gotta be right, but <laughs> it's just math. They you are know, beautiful. So you gotta get your input conditions right. That's, I find that so, first of all, great question, Peter. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, and the, kind of a theme that we talk about from time to time uh, is how uh, computing and our kind of leaning on uh, that tool can maybe atrophy other elements of the game. And when we're talking about these old guys, I'm not not you, Russ, but I'm talking about the, the fathers of That's the right. the fathers of the uh, profession. You're at least like an uncle or something like okay. that. You're, but um, when we're talking about these these people uh, without computers, really, I mean, they had yeah. physics, they had Newtonian physics and like observation, the laboratory and the imagination. I mean, I think that to to work your brain into a place where you can observe the most minute details of a, a boulder moving uh, just a, just just minutely. Um, I think is just such a uh, an important skill of being perceptive, yeah. just being perceptive to uh, the the physical world in uh, just the most you know subtle and and seemingly small ways. Uh, I don't know, Peter. I, I feel like that yeah, is yeah, like maybe the the at the nexus of what made coastal engineering. I mean, for the for the pioneers. Yeah. Uh, so interesting. Well, it's, you know, to me, Russ, it's a little bit, it's a good reminder of the capacity to understand complex problems in the days before sophisticated, uh, sophisticated computer modeling. I mean, remember, we got to the moon with slide rules. Uh, there was a little bit of a computer on like board. Celestial navigation. It was navigation. less than a TI-30. <laughs> but uh, these guys, through calculate men and women, through calculation and other techniques which were uh, could get it done. And I think some great coastal engineering, of course, the principles of coastal engineering were laid down by the folks back in the day. I think, is that fair to say, Russ? I think is the, has the profession advanced a great deal, changed in its fundamental understanding of the dynamics of the coastal environment over your career? Or do you think the old guys kind of had it down? Uh, the old guys really had it down, but but they were really the pioneers, you know the, you know the Weagles and and the Bob Deans and the uh, the, the others that are of that era. Mm -hmm. They really advanced um, from what was really a fled, fledgling understanding of coastal processes because things that happened in the early 1900s, for example, just clearly flew in the face of of reasonable coastal engineering. Why would you put a harbor there once you put it there? It showed in immediately. So we learned these things, you know, and you know, and I think a lot of that maybe was generated, you know, due to necessity, either through pre preparation for wartime, for yeah. you know, for World War II and things like that. Yeah. That got a lot of the great minds together of, of, you know, building, you know, naval shipyards and protecting ships and beach landings and things like that. So I think that could have been a, a nexus there, but that really got it going. And I think these 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 people were the right people at the right time and they were 
really visionary and just their, their capacity to do so much research, you know, their breadth of, of the work that they did is just astounds me. And I think it's just refined since then. I'm not aware of any huge breakthroughs other than just refining our tools better and better with these computer simulation models and things like that. All right. Uh, uh, we're going to move along back to the, back to the timeline. Okay, so you're just starting at Moffat and Nickel. We're going back to the begin, back to uh, the beginning of your professional career. Eighty-six. I would like to learn uh, wh- how. D- can you tell us about what Moffat and Nickel was like starting back then? It's still around. Moffat and Nickel still, I, my understanding, a, a major firm, major uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, company here yeah. on the American shoreline. I see Moffat and Nickel uh, at every ASBPA. I think as of a course. as a sponsor and. Um, Russ, what was it like walking into the office there on your first day at Moffat and Nickel? And did you have any idea that you'd be there uh, till 2020? <laughs> 36 years. You know, the, the, my, my time there does, didn't really surprise me because I, I, I knew I'd really like it and I just had a really good feeling about it. And I had a connection. I knew Jack Nickel, um, who was kind of like the, the second generation Nickel. I knew him personally. And so I knew about the firm coming in and how much of a just a real fine person he was, not to mention um, a really good engineer. So I had a pretty good idea that I was going to fit in there well, but I had no idea just how um, stimulating the career of coastal engineering would be because the opportunity to work on so many different types of projects from uh, a simple shore protection project to uh, an ecosystem restoration project or a big, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, how to uh, uh, deal with a a ship surge problem in a harbor that that people didn't understand. So just these different types of problems that that you just have to get your tools and your teams and, and collaborate and try to figure out the best way to, you know, to solve them. So as I worked my way up into the company and I would begin to be supervising and, and interview the next um, generation of coastal front coastal engineers, um, my one line I would always say to um, prospective employees was that I'm going to only promise you one thing is that is that you're never going to be bored. Yeah, because that's a great promise. So many different exciting things. And, and in coastal engineering, it's different than other uh, disciplines within civil engineering because there's there is no there's no code there's no design manual per se it's a lot of head scratching and collaboration and using your judgment and maybe build a pilot project and see how that works there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns because where land and sea meet uh, it's very very complex do, do you That's remember exciting. do you remember your first uh, project that you worked on with Moffat and Nickel um, actually, um, yeah, it was actually a, it was an interesting uh, shore protection project down in uh, South Laguna, this, <laughs> a beach called uh, Blue Lagoon, of all things. Huh. And it was just a, uh, an a- uh, area that uh, the, the homes were built on these slabs um, without really good foundations, and they were suffering from some erosion and things like that. So one of my first projects was to... Uh, um, you know, kind of help suss out that problem and, and understand a lot more about the coastal processes of how sand moved around in some of these areas in Southern California, where we've got bi-directional waves, we got 
you know, southern hemisphere, you got waves from the south in the summer, from the west in the winter, in these embayments. And so the, the sand sometimes just goes from one end to the other like a teeter-totter. So I learned a lot about these things early on. So, uh, cool. But it was just, that was one of so many things. It was just like drinking from a fire hose or just so many things to do and learn. It was really very exciting. It's, it's the most artistic of engineering professions, in my opinion, uh, because as you've mentioned, the dynamic nature of the uh, environment you're operating in. I like to say when when we're explaining beach nourishment projects to folks that when Tyler and I used to work on funding these things and trying to get tax increases from the public and explaining what the engineers was doing, uh, were doing, uh, it was a sort of final design by God was a phrase I like to use <laughs> to explain what the adjusted beach profile really was. I mean, yeah. the engineers do a certain thing and the final look and feel of this beach is going to be a subject of the natural system that it operates in and it's it's unlike any other i think profession structural engineering where precision and exactitude is the highest uh calling and in coastal engineering it's about anticipation and change and dynamic systems and it's a little different profession i just think it's it's great it's got to be a great career well, should we head out to Maui? Well, I do, I do want to, yes, we should. And Russ, we want to talk about this Maui project. And I wanted to pick up the other transition that you talked about in your introductory remarks about the appreciation of, uh, of the natural systems along the coast. You're talking about marina installation in certain wetlands. And as that was a booming business uh, back in the day, maybe with not a lot of cautious thought about that. It was just simply about improvements in infrastructure. Um, we've moved to a point where, over your career, it seems, the coastal engineering profession has advanced well beyond armoring, shore protection, and structures into this more difficult, complex world of living shorelines and engineering with nature is the phrase we often hear. Um, and of course, that was kind of what you were dealing with over there in Maui. And I, so I wondered if you could kind of set up the conversation about your work in Maui uh, in light of this uh, transition in the coastal engineering profession. Well, yeah, that, that, this Maui project really exemplifies, um, and I'll talk a little bit about the issues and the evolution of solving the problem that really turned out um, both in terms of what made sense in Maui so spatially, but also temporally, what also made sense, you know, for uh, uh, the right solution at the right time, as we're trying to be smarter with um, these limited natural resources, you know, with the with the pending sea level rise, um, it was I think we feel was an elegant solution, but it took a while to to get there. Um, and so, uh, w with that, I if you'd like, I can start giving a little bit of background. Yeah, please do give us an overview of the of of the problem you were asked to tackle in Maui uh, with the wastewater treatment plant. Sure. Um, so the, as far as the, the, the setting, um, this is located on the North shore of Maui. Um, so for those of you not familiar, um, the North shore of Maui, it's similar characteristics to the North shore of Oahu. In the wintertime, there's really big surf. Um, there's the, the world famous Piahi surf break, otherwise known as Jaws is on the north shore of Maui. Um, there's world-class, you know, windsurfing and kite surfing, but there's also just really great, both active and passive coastal recreation for, for locals 
and visitors alike. It's just a really um, interesting and just beautiful environment. But while it's ideally suited for very active ocean recreation, including the big winds and, and, and waves that I talk about, no surprise that these also contribute to pervasive erosion problems. So if you think of Maui, if you envision it on a map, it's oriented roughly east to west, and there's kind of a big mountain on the east and a big mountain on the west with a very low isthmus that connects the two. And in this very low-lying isthmus is where the, uh, the county of Maui operates the, the Wailuku Kahului Wastewater Reclamation Facility near Kahului, where if you've ever gone in, the airport is right there, and also Kahului Harbor. And this is all on the north shoreline of the isthmus. And obviously, I think you don't have to think too hard about the geography to realize why they put a wastewater reclamation facility at the bottom of the hill. Right. <laughs> Everything's got to flow downhill. Exactly. And, and we've got a discharge point. That seems like a yeah. good engineering decision in all honesty. Well, I, you know, I think, Russ, it's interesting because we see this all around the world is, is, yes. the, the, is significant infrastructure projects like this, including airports. This is true of, of yeah. San Francisco International Airport essentially built at the water's edge and that creates a unique kind of risk lax now. built yes. in the dunes lax right. as you as you get down to climate change and sea level rise these you need a big open flat space yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, jfk in new york yes built course. in the wetlands yeah yeah it's a good place for an airport for good, a big open place for wastewater mm -hmm. uh but that that the problem of course is as you're saying in this particular environment uh, that key facility is then at risk. And uh, I understand in this particular case, the, uh, the facility, the wastewater treatment plant was, uh, d did it ever get damaged or was it in, at risk of being damaged? There was a little bit of flooding actually due to a tsunami that uh, I think is right around the, I, I, I forget the year, maybe, uh, 2014, 2015, something like that. But other than that, no, but but very close. But it was never um, to the point threatened. There was some times when erosion actually undermined some of the, the pipelines that were the infrastructures that connected, infrastructure that connected the injection well. So that was a, a trigger of concern. Um, so that's about as close as you'd want it to get. Um, because not only do we have these injection wells, but you know, you've got right behind those uh, chlorine storage building and from what the mechanical engineers or chemical engineers tell me you don't want to mix chlorine with no. seawater so so um so yeah so it was back in 2005 when they realized they had a real challenge because uh the available treatment capacity due to population growth in the area was projected to run out in 10 years so they had to decide okay well are we going to expand the capacity we already know that it's in an eroding area. And so we were part of a team that did a study uh, of what should be done. And the key result that came out of the study was that, uh, yeah, if you want to relocate the, the plant to higher ground, safer ground, that could be done to the tune of $400 million. Whereas protecting it in place and upgrading the capacity for, for population growth was $30 million. So. This is a you know this is a public utility and and a kind of a small area so uh, it wasn't too hard for them to figure out that they just couldn't afford the the four hundred million dollar uh, price tag 
And so the, the challenge to the county and the team was to upgrade the facility, uh, protect against shoreline erosion and tsunami, as well as the future seal arrives and, and do it in a way that avoided, uh, minimized or mitigated any, any negative um, environmental impact. So that was the, the challenge faced by the, the county and the team. Russ, this is, as you said, 2005, you get brought in to uh, help the county tackle this problem. Um, was sea level rise a clearly understood factor in the calculations and analysis that you did, uh, or was the profession not quite there yet? Uh, I can't remember 2005. Were we, were we serious about sea level I was rise in projections high school. at that time? We were we were talking about it, and when we would, because um, when we talk about um, design conditions and design basis, we would look at still water levels, and so yeah. we were aware that historically sea levels were rising, but it was under a foot for every hundred years, and and I think in Hawaii it may have been a little bit more because it's not just global sea level rise, but it's relative sea level rise, and some of the islands are the older islands are sinking a little bit, so there's huh. a little bit more relative seal to rise, but it wasn't, it wasn't a significant issue compared to some of the other things, you know? So we talked about it and we may have put in like an allowance of a, of a foot of sea level rise over the, the life just to account for other uncertainties and things like that. But it wasn't really um, uh, considered or included as a kind of an important design parameter until maybe, I don't know, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, I think is when yeah. we really started taking a hard look at it. Well, I'm curious. Let's let's go back to this moment where uh, you've you've the uh, utility has a decision to make. You can, well, maybe not exactly. You know that uh, relocating the facility is just prohibitively expensive. Uh, without, I don't know, like a major federal grant, uh, this wastewater facility is not going to be able to move. Uh, but a uh, keeping it in place and uh, fortifying the area and making it work there is still, uh, a, a, you say, a $30 million uh, project. How was, was funding being talked about at this time? Um, how was the funding for this project being approached? Um, I don't have the best answer for that. I wasn't really um, working with the county as far as how they were going to fund it. I know there was some discussions of, of passing on certain of the, 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 the cost to, you know, uh, it, rate increases and things like that. Um, and I'm not sure what the magnitude of those were, um, nor do I, did I understand maybe did they already have something in the budget in anticipation because right. they had been tracking right this um, increasing demand. And so they had a pretty good feel for, you know, in year 2015, we're gonna be out of capacity. So we need to figure this out in 2005. So it, they did do some good planning. So maybe the good planning was also included in their, their budgeting. But I, I definitely know that that, uh, that the $400 million price tag was something that there's just no way they felt comfortable with. Uh, well, what did, uh Russ, after uh, after the analysis and in the work, what did you decide to do? What did your team recommend in terms of uh, a strategy to protect this facility? We first, what we wanted to do is to make sure we understood the problem instead of just dealing with um, the symptoms. And so um, we spent some time understanding why the beach was eroding, 
um, such that we can anticipate, well, is it, is it something that's going to continue to accelerate or to level off? And so um, we looked at a variety of, of cultural processes because, again, I think it's, it's obvious, but what I'm talking about here is the, the incredibly valuable resource of the amount of beach sand fronting the facility. That's the, its natural shore protection. Um, with a wide beach, there's nothing to worry about due to erosion or sea level rise. It's when we lose that sandy beach that the ocean comes closer to the structure and causes causes erosion and flooding threats. So, yeah. so, so that's the important parameter. So we look at, you know, how the sediment is moved by waves, um, how it's moved by by wind. Wind-driven sediment transport is really important, as well as what's been happening with the the coastal dune and the reef system, because all those contribute to the the sediment budget. And since this area was had been eroding over time. We coastal engineers describe that as being a situation of being in a sediment budget deficit. So how do we deal with that? So this is a case where in the good old days, they might put up something like the Galveston seawall and get the cement trucks out and put a form together and just start building the biggest concrete wall you can between the facility and the ocean. That wasn't the solution you came up with. Uh, talk to us about what you recommended and what actually was successfully instant installed in this location. Right. The uh, actually early in the seven in the mid seventies, um, not too long after it was built, they already had an erosion problem. They had some storms, and they brought the Corps of Engineers in, and they were going to armor the whole shoreline, but they didn't have the funding, so they only ordered, armored a small part of this promontory, promontory which protects this um, uh, holding or this detention pond. And the rest of the shoreline became threatened later, which was the problem we were dealing with. So so as coastal engineers, to to solve this problem as well, the most direct antidote to erosion or seal arise is to put sand back on the beach. So beach nourishment was uh, a lead alternative. Uh, but considering the, the critical nature of this um, uh, this infrastructure and the uh, the sensitivity of it to flooding um, and the the consequences of that was a concern that we felt that it should also be include uh, a shore protective device some type of shore protection should be included um, regardless but it would be good to do that with beach nourishment so the alternatives were shore protection beach nourishment or the combination thereof but really strongly can driving on not just being beach nourishment, um, just due to the risk. So that was the kind of the the number of alternatives that were put forward um, to the county. Uh, Those went out to uh, the resource agencies and the public. And um, basically after a a good amount of time, the the state at least, or the county, at least the wastewater uh, division said that they just weren't in the beach nourishment business because Mm. The state had a chronic lack of sand resources, so that was going to be very expensive. And also, interestingly, in Hawaii, um, there's one of the resource agencies, the Department of Health, put some real strong restrictions on beach nourishment or any type of sediment that goes uh, in the marine waters. They a lot of the, the uh, they look at that as being a pollutant due to turbidity concerns. And so, with that. Um, back to the drawing board. And so we worked with the county and the team and we came up with a hybrid solution that has uh, a variety of different elements. It has managed retreat. 
we knew it was a challenge. We didn't want to armor the shoreline right where it was because of the impact of that on access and, and coastal processes. So we talked to the county and said, you've got some land before it, you lose enough property that you're right up against these injection wells. How about you give that up, not immediately, but as it erodes away, if it does, you have that be sacrificial and we'll bury a shore protection revetment right up as close as we can go to the, the um, injection wells, as close as we can get to the primary infrastructure. And then with the material that's liberated from that excavation, we're gonna bury the revetment and completely cover it up the rocks and we're going to plan it with dune plants to make it basically a living dune shoreline and that's the, the the project that was done we also did some elements to raise the adjacent shore protection that was put in in the 1970s to raise it up to accommodate the sea level rise of three feet that we were projecting to match the design that we were going with so it was kind of that hybrid solution of um managed retreat uh, dealing with it by putting some armor in there, but also trying to move the thread away by putting some sand and dune, living dune on the beach uh, to uh, to do that. And so um, that was it. Was the county approved that, and uh, and it was approved in the county, and the project went forward. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, in the in the white paper, ladies and gentlemen, in Shorn Beach, uh, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes here and. I encourage y'all to look at uh, there are some great images but uh, there happens to be a profile image kind of a slice of this revetment uh, could you just talk us through kind of the engineering considerations in this uh, hardened structure I see that you've got it, it appears to have some sort of uh, footing of smaller stone and then large boulders to make up the principal armor can you talk a little bit about the, the how this thing works yeah, sure. It's just uh, so what we're looking at a situation of, let's say, in a big storm event, the dune is washed away. And so you've got this this revetment shore protection to protect the structure. Um, a lot of times you get some erosion right at the toe of the structure. And sometimes you can't due to due to um, limitations of equipment or what whatnot. You can't build the, the foundation deep enough to limit undermining. And so at the front of the structure, there's this horizontal section called a sacrificial apron. And so if we get some erosion out in front of the structure, that flat part will settle down into that scour area, but not um, kind of undermine the, the slope above it. So that's one of the things that's put in there. And then we also, uh, it's, it's designed as a, as a filter. Um, you want to have nice big porous stones that are not gonna move significantly when you've got a, a 10 foot wave breaking right on it. So that's what determines the size of the outer layer. And the coastal engineers have various calculations of hydraulic stability. But then you also don't wanna lose sandy, very fine material from the other side of that. So we place the really big stone on smaller stone as kind of a filter, but then that's still not small enough to filter the sand material that's behind it so then as the foundation for this double layered rock revetment, we put in what we call geo, geotextile filter fabric, which will dissipate you know, water. Water can flow in and out, but the sediment will not be pumped or jetted through from the land side to the ocean during storm events. So it really limits any further loss of land from behind the revetment. 
and we design them to be high enough such that uh, you don't get a great deal of flooding, but they are designed to have some overtopping, but just as, as a, a, an amount that's manageable for the proximity, the type of land and the type of in infrastructure that's immediately behind. Well, it looks, I, again, in the photographs in the paper, it looks really cool. And, you know, uh, you can see the excavator there. It gives you a, a sense of scale uh, to the size of these rocks, uh, boulders, I guess I'm going to call them, that are going in there. And they are kind of placed, you know. They're not just thrown in willy-nilly. These, uh, these are very, very carefully placed in there. And it looks, it almost looks like a like driveway pavers or something, the way yeah. that they kind of lock in. Um, but uh, anyway, so the, this goes in and then it got covered up with the sand that was displaced to uh, kind of dig this hole uh, to put it in and then vegetated. And I'm, I'm moving along here to kind of the final phase. But now, now when you look at this thing, you would never, ever know that this was there, Russ. It seems like it's just a, a, a superb outcome. Uh, talk about uh, how this how upon completion how this thing uh, has performed yeah i'm just i'm i'm so proud of of this project and and how it worked out because i love the fact that it's there but you wouldn't even know it it's just there it's buried it's like an insurance policy it's all paid up and ready to go um and so yeah it's it's actually been tested and i've you know stayed in pretty close contact with um, the county of maui and there have been a number of fairly active hurricane seasons. And so what happens is, you know, these big storm waves, they pull sand offshore out, off into the reef area. And so it kind of chews away at the toe of the, the dune. And so what happens is we lose sand at the dune, at the toe of the dune. Um, we lose some of the dune plants and it exposes. I've never seen pictures of the most of the revetment being exposed, but maybe the, the lower third of it being exposed basically to resist the, the wave attack. But then months after, um, the seasons change, the beach builds back up, and this dune plant, in this case, it's a, I think it's a beach morning glory, is, is fairly robust and it just grows right back. So, I mean, it really, really, really suits the definition of uh, a living shoreline. It does, it's, 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 it's a creative and innovative and beautiful solution to a, a tricky problem, as you say, with the facility being located where it is, it is not going to be removed or, or relocated. The risk of storm surge inundation is real with the, with the chlorine uh, plants associated with this wastewater treatment facility and the wastewater itself uh, and a narrow shoreline and the, and the regulatory considerations that are applicable here from the Department of, of Health and the the problems with uh, turbidity in, t in traditional beach nourishment. And what I love about this example, Russ, and why I think it's such an important example is, is for folks out there to understand the complexity of considerations that really come into play in coastal engineering and why I do think it is an art. Uh, you have to be super creative to define the right formula and uh, it looks like just a tremendous outcome does the trick uh, in terms of the level of protection required but the shoreline looks beautiful and it's uh, when was it completed what year uh, was it finished it was finished in 2015 so it's had about six years uh, to you know uh, basically perform yeah and protect. 
Well, that's pretty yeah. good. And I know that Hawaii had a few hurricanes in the last couple of years, and uh, the prognosis is we're going to have more. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, an outstanding result. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Russ, Russell Boudreau, uh with, with the uh, Coastal Frontiers Corporation, one of the great uh, specialized coastal engineering firms in America. And the paper, which is in the fall 2018 edition of Shore and Beach Magazine, we will include it in the show description, is called Maui's Resilient Living Shoreline Project Provides Adaptation Strategy for Critical Infrastructure. It's a great paper. Very innovative. And a really good example of, of the art of coastal engineering. Uh, final thoughts, Russ? A- absolutely. I, obviously, I love talking about this profession, and I've just gotten so much from it. So I, I like to give back. Um of what I've gotten out of the profession, doing things like this to talk about it, to generate interest and excitement with uh, with younger engineers or younger students who are com- contemplating, you know, what career path they might take. Because it sure was wonderful for me, and and I think we all know that that uh, now more than ever, there's many challenges ahead for coastal scientists and engineers, and and we need folks who are sharp and who are passionate about our coasts and oceans. We absolutely do. Totally. And let me just add, Russ, I, I hope we can uh, convene in person at uh, ASBPA's fall conference uh, in New that Orleans. Would be, that would be great. I, I, uh, that would be cool to... I hope we get to do that. ...have a beer together or something at some point. And uh, r- really great, really great talking to you, Russ. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Singing Mama now.